Section 13 of the Interpretation of Dreams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Interpretation of Dreams by Sigmund Freud. Translated by A. A. Brill. Section 13. Distortion in Dreams. Preliminary Statement. If I now declare that wish fulfillment is the meaning of every dream, so that there cannot be any dreams other than wish dreams, I know beforehand that I shall meet with the most emphatic contradiction. My critics will object. The fact that there are dreams which are to be understood as fulfillments of wishes is not new, but has long since been recognized by such writers as Radistock, Volkelt, Perkinji, Grissinger, and others. That there can be no other dreams than those of wish fulfillments is yet one more unjustified generalization, which fortunately can be easily refuted. Dreams which present the most painful content, and not the least trace of wish-fulfillment, occur frequently enough. The pessimistic philosopher Edward von Hartmann is perhaps most completely opposed to the theory of wish-fulfillment. In his Philosophy of the Unconscious, Part 2, he says, As regards the dream, with it all the troubles of waking life pass over into the sleeping state, all save the one thing which may in some degree reconcile the cultured person with life scientific and artistic enjoyment but even less pessimistic observers have emphasized the fact that in our dreams pain and disgust are more frequent than pleasure two ladies sarah weed and florence hallam have even worked out on the basis of their dreams a numerical value for the preponderance of distress and discomfort in dreams they find that fifty eight per cent of dreams are disagreeable and only twenty eight point six positively pleasant besides those dreams that convey into our sleep the many painful emotions of life there are also anxiety dreams in which this most terrible of all the painful emotions torments us until we wake now it is precisely by these anxiety dreams that children are so often haunted and yet it was in children that you found the wish-fulfillment dream in its most obvious form already plotinus the neoplatonist said when desire bestirs itself then comes fantasy and presents to us, as it were, the object of desire. The anxiety dream does really seem to preclude a generalization of the thesis deduced from the examples given in the last chapter, that dreams are wish-fulfillments, and even to condemn it as an absurdity. Nevertheless, it is not difficult to parry these apparently invincible objections. It is merely necessary to observe that our doctrine is not based upon the estimates of the obvious dream content, but relates to the thought content which in the course of interpretation is found to lie behind the dream let us compare and contrast the manifest and the latent dream content it is true that there are dreams the manifest content of which is of the most painful nature but has anyone ever tried to interpret these dreams to discover their latent thought content if not the two objections to our doctrine are no longer valid for there is always the possibility that even our painful and terrifying dreams may upon interpretation proved to be wish fulfillments it is quite incredible with what obstinacy readers and critics have excluded this consideration and disregarded the fundamental differentiation between the manifest and the latent dream content nothing in the literature of the subject approaches so closely to my own conception of dreams as a passage in j sully's essay dreams as a revelation it would seem then after all that dreams are not the utter nonsense they have been said to be by such authorities as chaucer shakespeare and milton the chaotic aggregations of our night fancy have a significance and communicate new knowledge like some letter in cipher 
the dream inscription when scrutinized closely loses its first look of balderdash and takes on the aspect of a serious intelligible message or to vary the figure slightly we may say that like some palimpsest the dream discloses beneath its worthless surface characters traces of an old and precious communication in scientific research it is often advantageous if the solution of one problem presents difficulties to add it to a second problem just as it is easier to crack two nuts together instead of separately thus we are confronted not only with the problem how can painful and terrifying dreams be the fulfillment of wishes but we may add to this a second problem which arises from the foregoing discussion of the general problem of the dream why do not the dreams that show an indifferent content and yet turn out to be wish fulfillments reveal their meaning without disguise take the exhaustively treated dream of irma's injection it is by no means of a painful character and it may be recognized upon interpretation as a striking wish fulfillment but why is an interpretation necessary at all why does not the dream say directly what it means as a matter of fact the dream of irma's injection does not at first produce the impression that it represents a wish of the dreamers as fulfilled the reader will not have received this impression and even i myself was not aware of the fact until i had undertaken the analysis if we call this peculiarity of dreams namely that they need elucidation the phenomenon of distortion in dreams a second question then arises what is the origin of this distortion in dreams if one's first thoughts on this subject were consulted several possible solutions might suggest themselves for example that during sleep one is incapable of finding an adequate expression for one's dream thoughts the analysis of certain dreams however compels us to offer another explanation i shall demonstrate this by means of a second dream of my own which again involves numerous indiscretions but which compensates for this personal sacrifice by affording a thorough elucidation of the problem preliminary statement in the spring of 1897, I learnt that two professors of our university had proposed me for the title of Professor Extraordinarius, Assistant Professor. The news came as a surprise to me and pleased me considerably as an expression of appreciation on the part of two eminent men which could not be explained by personal interest. But I told myself immediately that I must not expect anything to come of their proposal. For some years past, the ministry had disregarded such proposals and several colleagues of mine who were my seniors and at least my equals in desert had been waiting in vain all this time for the appointment i had no reason to suppose that i should fare any better i resolved therefore to resign myself to disappointment i am not so far as i know ambitious and i was following my profession with gratifying success even without the recommendation of a professorial title whether I considered the grapes to be sweet or sour did not matter, since they undoubtedly hung too high for me. One evening a friend of mine called to see me, one of those colleagues whose fate I had regarded as a warning. As he had long been a candidate for promotion to the professoriate, which in our society makes the doctor a demigod to his patients, and as he was less resigned than I, he was accustomed from time to time to remind the authorities of his claims in the hope of advancing his interests it was after one of these visits that he called on me he said that this time he had driven the exalted gentleman into a corner and had asked him frankly whether considerations of religious denomination were not really responsible for the postponement of his appointment the answer was his excellency had to admit that in the present state of public opinion he was not in a position etc now at least i know where i stand my friend concluded his narrative which told me nothing new 
but which was calculated to confirm me in resignation for the same denominational considerations would apply to my own case on the morning after my friend's visit i had the following dream which was notable also on account of its form it consisted of two thoughts and two images so that a thought and an image emerged alternately but here i shall record only the first half of the dream since the second half has no relation to the purpose for which i cite the dream one my friend r is my uncle i have a great affection for him two i see before me his face somewhat altered it seems to be elongated a yellow beard which surrounds it is seen with peculiar distinctness then follow the other two portions of the dream again a thought and an image which i omit the interpretation of this dream was arrived at in the following manner when i recollected the dream in the course of the morning i laughed outright and said the dream is nonsense but i could not get it out of my mind and i was pursued by it all day until at last in the evening i reproached myself in these words if in the course of a dream interpretation one of your patients could find nothing better to say than that is nonsense you would reprove him and you would suspect that behind the dream there was hidden some disagreeable affair the exposure of which he wanted to spare himself apply the same thing to your own case your opinion that the dream is nonsense probably signifies merely an inner resistance to its interpretation don't let yourself be put off i then proceeded with the interpretation r is my uncle what can that mean i had only one uncle my uncle joseph his story to be sure was a sad one once more than thirty years ago hoping to make money he allowed himself to be involved in transactions of a kind which the law punishes severely and paid the penalty my father whose hair turned grey with grief within a few days used always to say that uncle joseph had never been a bad man but after all he was a simpleton if then my friend r is my uncle joseph that is equivalent to saying r is a simpleton hardly credible and very disagreeable but there is the face that i saw in the dream with its elongated features and its yellow beard my uncle actually had such a face long and framed in a handsome yellow beard my friend r was extremely swarthy but when black-haired people begin to grow gray they pay for the glory of their youth their black beards undergo an unpleasant change of color hair by hair first they turn a reddish brown then a yellowish brown and then definitely gray my friend r's beard is now in this stage so for that matter is my own a fact which i note with regret the face that i see in my dream is at once that of my friend r and that of my uncle it is like one of those composite photographs of galton's in order to emphasize family resemblances galton had several faces photographed on the same plate no doubt is now possible it is really my opinion that my friend r is a simpleton like my uncle joseph it is astonishing to see how my memory here restricts itself in the waking state for the purposes of analysis i have known five of my uncles and i loved and honored one of them but at the moment when i overcame my resistance to the interpretation of the dream i said to myself i have only one uncle the one who was intended in the dream i have still no idea for what purpose i have worked out this relationship it is certainly one to which i must unreservedly object yet it is not very profound for my uncle was a criminal and my friend r is not except in so far as he was once fined for knocking down an apprentice with his bicycle can i be thinking of this offence that would make the comparison ridiculous here i recollect another conversation which i had some days ago with another colleague n 
as a matter of fact, on the same subject. I met N in the street. He, too, has been nominated for a professorship, and having heard that I had been similarly honored, he congratulated me. I refused his congratulations, saying, You are the last man to jest about the matter, for you know from your own experience what the nomination is worth. Thereupon he said, Though probably not in earnest. You can't be sure of that. There is a special objection in my case. Don't you know that a woman once brought a criminal accusation against me? I need hardly assure you that the matter was put right. It was a mean attempt at blackmail, and it was all I could do to save the plaintiff from punishment. But it may be that the affair is remembered against me at the ministry. You, on the other hand, are above reproach. Here, then, I have the criminal, and at the same time the interpretation and tendency of my dream. My uncle Joseph represents both of my colleagues who have not been appointed to the professorship. The one is a simpleton, the other as a criminal. Now, too, I know for what purpose I need this representation. If denominational considerations are a determining factor in the postponement of my two friends' appointment, then my own appointment is likewise in jeopardy. But if I can refer the rejection of my two friends to other causes, which do not apply to my own case, my hopes are unaffected. This is the procedure followed by my dream. It makes the one friend R a simpleton and the other N a criminal. But since I am neither one nor the other, there is nothing in common between us. I have a right to enjoy my appointment to the title of professor and have avoided the distressing application to my own case of the information which the official gave to my friend R. I must pursue the interpretation of this dream still farther, for I have a feeling that it is not yet satisfactorily elucidated. I still feel disquieted by the ease with which I have degraded two respected colleagues in order to clear my own way to the professorship. My dissatisfaction with this procedure has, of course, been mitigated since I have learned to estimate the testimony of dreams at its true value. I should contradict anyone who suggested that I really considered R. a simpleton, or that I did not believe N.'s account of the blackmailing incident. And, of course, I do not believe that Irma has been made seriously ill by an injection of a preparation of propyl administered by Otto. Here, as before, what the dream expresses is only my wish that things might be so. The statement in which my wish is realized sounds less absurd in the second dream than in the first. It is here made with a skillful use of actual points of support in establishing something like a plausible slander, one of which could say that there is something in it. For at that time, my friend R. had to contend with the adverse vote of a university professor of his own department, and my friend N. had himself, all unsuspectingly, provided me with material for the calumny. Nevertheless, I repeat, it still seems to me that the dream requires further elucidation. I remember now that the dream contained yet another portion which has hitherto been ignored by the interpretation. After it occurred to me that my friend R. was my uncle, I felt in the dream a great affection for him. To whom is this feeling directed? For my uncle Joseph, of course, I have never had any feelings of affection. R has for many years been a dearly loved friend. But if I were to go to him and express my affection for him in terms approaching the degree of affection which I felt in the dream, he would undoubtedly be surprised. My affection, if it was for him, seems false and exaggerated, as does my judgment of his intellectual qualities which I express by merging his personality and that of my uncle, but exaggerated in the opposite direction. Now, however, a new state of affairs dawns upon me. The affection in the dream does not belong to the latent content, to the thoughts behind the dream. 
it stands in opposition to this content. It is calculated to conceal the knowledge conveyed by the interpretation. Probably this is precisely its function. I remember with what reluctance I undertook the interpretation, how long I tried to postpone it, and how I declared the dream to be sheer nonsense. I know from my psychoanalytic practice how such a condemnation is to be interpreted. It has no informative value, but merely expresses an effect. If my little daughter does not like an apple which is offered her, she asserts that the apple is bitter, without even tasting it. If my patient behaves thus, I know that we are dealing with an idea which they are trying to repress. The same thing applies to my dream. I do not want to interpret it because there is something in the interpretation to which I object. After the interpretation of the dream is completed, I discover what it was to which I objected. It was the assertion that R is a simpleton. I can refer the affection which I feel for R not to the latent dream thoughts, but rather to this unwillingness of mine. If my dream, as compared with its latent content, is disguised at this point, and actually misrepresents things by producing their opposites, then the manifest affection in the dream serves the purpose of the misrepresentation. In other words, the distortion is here shown to be intentional. It is a means of disguise. My dream thoughts of R are derogatory, and so that I may not become aware of this very opposite of defamation, a tender affection for him enters into the dream. This discovery may prove to be generally valid. As the examples in Chapter 3 have demonstrated, there are, of course, dreams which are undisguised wish-fulfillments. Wherever a wish-fulfillment is unrecognizable, undisguised, there must be present a tendency to defend oneself against this wish. And in consequence of this defense, the wish is unable to express itself save in a distorted form. I will try to find a parallel in social life to this occurrence in the inner psychic life. Where in social life can a similar misrepresentation be found? Only where two persons are concerned, one of whom possesses a certain power, while the other has to act with a certain consideration on account of this power. The second person will then distort his psychic actions, or as we say, he will mask himself. The politeness which I practice every day is largely a disguise of this kind. If I interpret my dreams for the benefit of my readers, I am forced to make misrepresentations of this kind. The poet even complains of the necessity of such misrepresentation. Das Bess, was du wissen kannst, darfst du den Buben doch nicht sagen. The best that thou canst know, thou mayst not tell to boys. The political writer who has unpleasant truths to tell those in power finds himself in a like position. If he tells everything without reserve, the government will suppress them, retrospectively in the case of verbal expression of opinion, preventively if they are to be published in the press. The writer stands in fear of the censorship. He therefore moderates and disguises the expression of his opinions. He finds himself compelled, in accordance with the sensibilities of the censor, either to refrain altogether from certain forms of attack, or to express himself in allusions instead of by direct assertions. He may, for instance, tell of a contretemps between two Chinese mandarins, while he really has in mind officials of his own country. The stricter the domination of the censorship, the more thorough becomes the disguise, and often enough, the more ingenious the means employed to put the reader on the track of the actual meaning. The detailed correspondence between the phenomena of censorship and the phenomena of dream distortion justifies us in presupposing similar conditions for both. We should then assume that in every human being there exist, as the primary cause of dream formation, two psychic forces, tendencies or systems. 
one of which forms the wish expressed by the dream, while the other exercises a censorship over the dream wish, thereby enforcing on it a distortion. The question is, what is the nature of the authority of this second agency by virtue of which it is able to exercise its censorship? If we remember that the latent dream thoughts are not conscious before analysis, but that the manifest dream content emerging from them is consciously remembered, it is not a far-fetched assumption that admittance to the consciousness is the prerogative of the second agency. Nothing can reach the consciousness from the first system which has not previously passed the second instance, and the second instance lets nothing pass without exercising its rights. Enforcing such modifications as are pleasing to itself upon the candidates for admission to consciousness. Here we arrive at a very definite conception of the essence of consciousness. For us, the state of becoming conscious is a special psychic act, different from and independent of the process of becoming fixed or represented, and consciousness appears to us as a sensory organ which perceives the content proceeding from another source. It may be shown that psychopathology simply cannot dispense with these fundamental assumptions, but we shall reserve for another time a more exhaustive examination of the subject. If I bear in mind the notion of the two psychic instances and their relation to the consciousness, I find in the sphere of politics a perfectly appropriate analogy to the extraordinary affection which I feel for my friend R, who is so disparaged in the dream interpretation. I refer to the political life of a state in which the ruler, jealous of his rights, and an active public opinion are in mutual conflict. The people, protesting against the actions of an unpopular official, demand his dismissal. The autocrat, on the other hand, in order to show his contempt for the popular will, may then deliberately confer upon the official some exceptional distinction which otherwise would not have been conferred. Similarly, my second instance, controlling the access to my consciousness, distinguishes my friend R with a brush of extraordinary affection because the wish tendencies of the first system, in view of a particular interest in which they are just then intent, would like to disparage him as a simpleton. We may now perhaps begin to suspect that dream interpretation is capable of yielding information concerning the structure of our psychic apparatus, which we have hitherto vainly expected from philosophy. We shall not, however, follow up this trail, but shall return to our original problem as soon as we have elucidated the problem of dream distortion. The question arose how dreams with a disagreeable content can be analyzed as wish fulfillments. We see now that this is possible where dream distortion has occurred, when the disagreeable content serves only to disguise the thing wished for. With regard to our assumptions respecting the two psychic instances, we can now also say that disagreeable dreams contain, as a matter of fact, something which is disagreeable to the second instance but which at the same time fulfills a wish of the first instance. They are wish dreams in so far as every dream emanates from the first instance, while the second instance behaves towards the dream only in a defensive, not in a constructive manner. Were we to limit ourselves to a consideration of what the second instance contributes to the dream, we should never understand the dream, and all the problems which the writers on the subject have discovered in the dream would have to remain unsolved. That the dream actually has a secret meaning, which proves to be a wish fulfillment, must be proved afresh in every case by analysis. I will therefore select a few dreams which have painful contents, and endeavor to analyze them. Some of them are dreams of hysterical subjects, which therefore call for a long preliminary statement, and in some passages an examination of the psychic processes occurring in hysteria. This, though it will complicate the presentation, is unavoidable. 
When I treat a psychoneurotic patient analytically, his dreams regularly, as I have said, become a theme of our conversations. I must therefore give him all the psychological explanations with whose aid I myself have succeeded in understanding his symptoms. And here I encounter unsparing criticism, which is perhaps no less shrewd than that which I have to expect from my colleagues. With perfect uniformity, my patients contradict the doctrine that dreams are fulfillments of wishes. Here are several attempts of the sort of dream material which is adduced in refutation of my theory. You are always saying that a dream is a wish fulfilled, begins an intelligent lady patient. Now I shall tell you a dream in which the content is quite the opposite, in which a wish of mine is not fulfilled. How do you reconcile that with your theory? The dream was as follows. I want to give a supper, but I have nothing available except smoked salmon. I think I will go shopping, but I remember that it is Sunday afternoon, when all the shops are closed. I then try to ring up a few caterers, but the telephone is out of order. Accordingly, I have to renounce my desire to give a supper. I reply, of course, that only the analysis can decide the meaning of this dream, although I admit that at first sight it seems sensible and coherent and looks like the opposite of a wish fulfillment. But what occurrence gave rise to this dream, I ask? You know that the stimulus of a dream always lies among the experiences of the preceding day. End of section 13. Recording by Alicia in Philadelphia.